You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning. I hope that each of you are doing wonderful and well this morning. My name's Rick Bowers. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I serve as pastor of community and formation here at Redeemer. And as one of the pastors of Redeemer, I have many responsibilities and many tasks in my role. And one of my tasks this morning that has been handed to me by our text is to echo something that you have undoubtedly heard from your mom or dad at some point in your life, and that is straighten up, behave, and get along. That is the plea of the Apostle Paul in our text this morning. And it's going to be my plea for us as a church as well as we walk through this text together. But the problem with getting along is that just like when we were young, we're not going to do it. Our selfishness is going to pull us away from doing that. And it's not that we can't do it. It's that we won't do it. It's that we'll make decisions, or we'll say things, or we'll behave in certain ways. We'll position ourselves against other people. We'll treat one person over here one way, or we'll treat another person over here another way, and conflict will arise. And it'll arise because of our sin, it'll arise because of our brokenness, and it will arise because of our differences. We'll say things, or we'll think things like, I'm different than you because I vote this way and you vote that way. Because I raise my children this way and you raise your children that way because I think we need to sing five songs in a church service and you think we need to double that. There's all kinds of differences that will draw us apart. And these differences, they can be a beautiful thing or they can be a divisive thing. The problem is when my identity as a Christian, gets all wrapped up in my differences. When the things that divide us become more powerful than the thing which unites us, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, suffers. And that's exactly what's happening to the church in ancient Corinth, and it's the main reason Paul's writing this letter back to the church here. We're just getting into this study. We're going to be spending a lot of time over the next year in the book of 1 Corinthians. We started it last week, and we learned last week that Paul came to a city called Corinth, and he preached the gospel in 50 A.D. Then he leaves around 50 A.D. Then he leaves. He hears the things that are going on in the church, and he writes a letter back to the church. And this is that letter. Last week... Uh, Josh opened up this series for us and with a wonderful message. If you did not listen to it, your homework is to listen to it this afternoon. And he mentioned last week that the city, the great city of Corinth, was very similar to our, to our current culture. And we're going to see that as we walk throughout uh, the book together. What we're seeing today is that there are divisions in the church. The gospel that once was the binding glue that held the church together is no longer that for them. In today's text, Paul's pleading for the church to heal those divisions, to run back to the gospel that they know, to remember who they are. And that's going to be where we set up shop today also. Today we're going to see that unity 
in the body of Jesus Christ suffers when my identity rests in my differences and not in my Savior. But hope isn't lost. The same gospel that saves us also unites us as a family. We just need to remember that truth and live out of that reality. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray for us, and we will get into our text. Good Father, you have blessed us with um, unending blessings in Christ Jesus. I just ask this morning that 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 your spirit would open up our hearts and let us receive that truth, that it would be evident that you would write your word on our hearts, that you would remember your promises to us, to sustain us, that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would encourage us where we need encouraging, that you would lift us up where we're weak and where we've stumbled, that you would make us strong. Would you move us towards any areas of restoration that we need in our own lives. We love you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's run through verses 11 through 15 one more time. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus, Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. One of the things that we love to ask children when they're little is, what do you want to be when you grow up? We ask that question because we get all kinds of really cute answers. Kids will say, I want to be an astronaut, or I want to be a baseball player, or I want to be a fireman, or I want to be a doctor, I want to be a veterinarian. Well, my parents visited recently and reminded me that when my teachers asked me that question, my answer was a little different than my classmates. When I was little and teachers asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a ninja. (laughs) And I did. Ninjas were cool to me. I really enjoyed everything to do with them. And so you can imagine my excitement when Chuck Norris came to the Houston area where we used to live, and he came to sign autographs and to uh, meet people. And when my family and I journeyed to where he was to get his autograph, we saw a sea of cars and a sea of people, people everywhere. We waited hours and hours just to get in to see him, just to get him to sign a picture of himself, just to um, hear from him, just to watch him fight a little bit, just to be close to this amazing personality. That scene is still pretty common for us today. You guys have probably been a part of a scene like that in one way or another, with a musician or an actor, uh, maybe an athlete. And the same scene happened in ancient Corinth, but really not around a person that you might expect. In ancient Corinth, it wasn't actors or athletes who were really the pinnacle of popularity. It was public speakers. They were known as rhetoricians. These were people who could stand and deliver an amazing oral performance. They were wizards with words. They knew exactly how to speak. They knew how to use inflection, voices up and down. They knew how to pick up the pace when they needed to pick up the pace and how to slow down when they needed to slow down. 
They knew how to use their rhetorical ability to gain the ear of people in the public square. Some of them would be teachers and in other times. When they weren't in the public square, they may be teachers in a classroom, and they would teach on philosophy, and they would teach on truth. But once they got in the public square, truth didn't matter. The gain was for them to get a following. The gain was for them to use their rhetorical ability to win an audience. Truth became secondary. Elevating themselves to popularity became the most important thing. Does that sound familiar? And the people of Corinth ate this up. They would begin to form factions and groups around certain speakers, speakers that they liked, speakers that they found commonality with. And the influence of these speakers would drive the Corinthians to fight and to argue amongst themselves, and that would fuel the speakers more, to get more people on their side, to get more people following them. And if you were a follower and you were part of this crowd, then by default, you're against the other crowds. By default, you think their speakers and whatever they're thinking is unintelligent. You think it doesn't make any sense. They're not of your same opinion. And consequently, by default, then they're lesser than you are. This was the scene in Corinth. And the Corinthian church was struggling to exist in this. The Corinthians lived and breathed a daily life of being influenced by popularity, personality, and preference. And what began to happen was the culture out there began to affect the culture in here in the church. Because just like they would follow a famous rhetorician or a famous speaker, <clears throat> they began to follow people within the church, but not in a good way. They began to form cults of personality around people who had actually come and proclaimed the gospel to them. And once they began to be known for who they followed, division, bitterness, quarreling, all of that came pretty quickly after. They would say, I follow Paul. You may follow Apollos, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. I follow Cephas. You may follow some of those other people, but they don't know what they're talking about. And I want to be clear, and I want to help us understand, they're not dividing over theological issues, over issues of who God is or what Christ has done. <clears throat> We're not talking about division over core issues of the faith. These men, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, they preached the same gospel message. The divisions were over things far less important. The divisions were over who was popular, what was my preference at the time. There's even a group trying to trump all the others. Paul calls them out a little bit, the Jesus group. This isn't a good thing. This is the group saying, I don't need anyone else. It's just me and Jesus. And we've met these kinds of people, right? They say, I don't need the church. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need to read this Bible. Jesus talks to me. It's just me and Jesus. We have our own cool little relationship. And Paul in verse 13 says, this is absurd. Division in the body, quarreling with each other. You're forgetting who, we are, who you are. <clears throat> Last week, Josh said that we might find in this study that we're eerily similar to the church in ancient Corinth, and here we are now. The culture we live in, the air we breathe, is a media-saturated culture where almost anyone is given a voice. We have modern-day rhetoricians popping up on our phone, on podcasts, on things we watch, on streaming media. 
speakers in the public square working hard to gain followers. And we watch and we listen and we tweet and we share and we comment and we begin to position ourselves against people who think differently than us or people who follow someone that aren't in the same echo chamber that we're in. We are ancient Corinth. We just dress it up a little bit differently. And I'm not saying that everything out there is bad. Don't misunderstand me. Don't hear that from what I'm saying. But we can't make the mistake of thinking that these things don't influence who we are and how we live. In the 1600s, a word popped up in the English language. It wasn't a very popular word. Then in early 2019, it suddenly skyrocketed in popularity almost overnight. The word is influencer. The Oxford Dictionary defines that as a person or thing that influences another. And the reason this word grew in popularity is because our culture began to flock around certain influencers in the media, particular people with certain personalities who scratched our preferences a little bit and rose in popularity. In a 2019 article, New Yorker magazine wrote on the rise of the influencer in our society, how influencers certainly aren't new, but with our newfound connectedness, the rise of the influencer shapes our culture dramatically. And at a rate not seen before, we're gathering over here around this influencer, over there around that influencer. And here's what's interesting. This article, and this is not a Christian publication, points out that when we do that, when we're influenced by someone and begin to identify so closely with a popular personality, we actually stand to lose something. The article says this. The influenced person is someone who no longer has a genuine identity. Such a person's motivations are unreal and unnatural because they originate with someone else. When we are shaped and influenced by a certain someone, and their lingo becomes our lingo, their opinions become our opinions, their thoughts become our thoughts, we can lose a true sense of our identity. When popularity, personality, and preference draw us around someone, we can begin to trade out their identity for ours. And before we know it, Christians are shouting, love is love. Or they're tweeting, let's go, Brandon. They're saying, my body, my choice. Before we know it, our preferences have us looking over at another living, breathing human being, and we're filled with rage, and we're filled with hate, and we're filled with anger towards them. And this isn't something happening out there to everyone else. We live and breathe it so much in our culture, we're bringing it in here, in the church, and we're bringing it in here, in our hearts. Instead of letting our identity in Christ shine through the darkness, we're hiding that and we're fighting for all the wrong reasons. <clears throat> the examples are endless. I'm not just talking about politics or political ideologies. You could sit here all day with those examples. There are others just the same. Sometimes we're influenced by certain evangelical teachers. Some of them good, some of them not so good. Some of them who are uh, self-proclaimed theological attack dogs. And all they do is argue and fight and attack and cause division. 
They have no time or room for patience and long-suffering and walking slowly along with people. They're known more for what they're against than what they're for. We pop in our AirPods and we turn on the podcast and we cut our yard or we drive to work or we fold the clothes and we slowly begin to trade our identity for theirs. And then we wonder why we're getting so angry all the time and nobody wants to talk to us anymore. We also trade our identities for little cults of preference. Nothing explicitly biblical whether we think our kids should be homeschooled or whether we think they should be public schooled, whether we agree with drinking alcohol or we don't agree with drinking alcohol, whether people should spend their money how they want to spend their money or whether, no, 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 they need to be giving more to the church, whether we preach about this topic or that topic, whether we do everything naturally or whether medicine is a common grace. When we begin to allow popularity, personalities and our own preferences influence and shape our identity against others within the church. We spend all our time building up walls in here when we should be tearing them down. And here's what's devastating about this. When the world out there looks in here and sees more of what divides us than what unites us, we're tearing apart the body of Christ limb by limb. When this is the posture of our hearts, we need renovation. There's a fundamental rule when you ride a bicycle. And that rule for riding a bicycle is that you need to keep your head and your eyes focused on where you want to go. Don't look too long at the tree on the edge of the trail. Don't look at too long at the car parked next to the sidewalk where you're riding Because if you do, you will inevitably begin to steer into that object, and you can imagine the results. Maybe you've experienced them. Where you're spending all your time staring begins to influence the direction that you move in. I don't think bicycles were invented when the book of Proverbs was written, but we find some similar wisdom there. In Proverbs chapter 4, it says this, Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. When we take our eyes off of our identity in Christ and we're influenced by what's out there and we're focusing on all our differences, crashing is inevitable, division is inevitable, bitterness comes, jealousy, quarreling, unity is lost. So how do we repair it? It's simple. And it's Paul's plea here. Remember who you are. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Paul uses the name of Jesus Christ 10 times in the first 10 verses of this letter. There's a driving force behind his plea for unity, and it's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's that person and that work which define us and which unite us. Here's what I mean. 
Paul is pointing to unity in Christ Jesus. And when we talk about unity in Christ, we can talk about a lot of things. The idea of being united in Christ is one that as Christians, sometimes we can say and we can hear, but we may not really understand what it means, and that's okay. The New Testament talks about being united in Christ or unity in Christ in lots of different ways. It's not just a singular reality. It has many implications for our lives. But I think if we pay attention to the text, Paul's talking about one of those implications in particular, and we can see it in how he writes. Here's how. As the Corinthians are biting and quarreling and arguing and fighting and forming one group over here and one group over there, and all of this is going on, how does Paul address them? What does he call them? He calls them brothers. Brothers. In fact, 1 Corinthians is second only in his letter to the, to the Romans and how often Paul uses this word. Remember, Paul's not Southern Baptist. This isn't a formality. This is a reality to believers in Christ Jesus. It's the uniting reality that Jesus prayed for himself in John 17, that all believers would be united in him as sons of God. Let's look at that right now. You don't have to turn there. It'll be behind me. John 17, 20 through 23. This is Jesus praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, he's talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Paul writes of the same uniting as a family under God. He writes of that in Romans, Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul does it again in Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's the reality that when the fact of our sin and our brokenness becomes crystal clear to us, and we place our faith upon Jesus Christ for rescue, it's at that very moment that we are united in Christ Jesus and brought into the family of God through divine adoption. It's at that moment that the reality of sonship, that we're sons of God and brothers with Christ, becomes our identity, forever loved, forgiven, free, and united as one family. That's who we are. And it's not worth trading for all the popularity, preference, and personality that's going on around us. As a son of God, my sonship means all kinds of things. One of them is this. It means that the love that we enjoy from God isn't predicated on our behavior. It doesn't mean God loves me when I'm good and hates me when I'm bad. His love for me abounds because of Christ even when I fail, it's endless, and I'm not going to lose it. It means when I do fail, God does not stare at me in disappointment and say, man, she really messed up this time. 
What's wrong with her? Wish I would have chosen someone else. His word says, that's not true. He delights in me. I make him happy. He doesn't just love me. He likes me. And here's something else. And I think this is what Paul is banking on here. This reality that comes to us by our sonship in God. Our sonship doesn't just mean that God is my father and I am his son or daughter. While it's true that I have a vertical relationship with God, our sonship doesn't just mean that we're all in a series of isolated personal relationships with God. The redeeming work of Jesus Christ didn't happen to create individualistic Christians. It happened to create a family. Christ shows us that not only do we have a vertical relationship with God our Father, we now have a horizontal relationship with every man, woman, and child who has ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ. An invisible and eternal bond united as family, siblings, now one in Christ Jesus. And if we're a family, how do we live? We can't look to the world to find out. Culture's been destroying the, de the family for decades. How does a family live? How do we treat one another? Maybe the Bible can help us. <clears throat> Maybe the life of Jesus, our Savior and older brother, can show us. John 13 says this, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John 10, Jesus says these words, I lay down my life for the sheep. Paul writes to the Philippian church and he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. A family serves one another. A family isn't selfish. They count others more significant. A family looks to the person next to them and says, you matter more than I do. You matter more than my preferences. You matter more to me than some popular personality out there. Those things are fleeting. Those things are temporary. But this family is eternal. So for you, I'll lay down what I want. Because our unity is more important to me than those things. See, humility is not just about not bragging about yourself all the time. That's definitely something that humility is about. But humility is about living in such a way that you decrease and those around you increase. It means, about, it means serving others just as you've been served in Christ. It means walking in continual 
reconciliation with one another. Because according to Christ Jesus, this family, look around the room. Do this for me. Look around the room real quick. It's okay. Just look around the room at everyone in this room. According to Christ Jesus, this family was worth dying for. The living God thought you were valuable enough to send his son to suffer the death you deserved, to suffer momentary separation from his father. That's how valuable you are to him. And the people you just looked at, that's how valuable they are to him as well. Doesn't matter how much they don't see things your way. Doesn't matter who they vote for. Doesn't matter if they forgot to call doesn't matter if they still have your casserole dish. <laughs> Doesn't matter if they don't text you back as quickly as you want them to. Doesn't matter what color their skin is. Doesn't matter how much money they have. Doesn't matter how old they are. Doesn't matter if they're married or single, whatever. You and them, one. Lay down your differences. Be of one mind. You and them, family. Extend grace and patience. Family is our identity. One family in Christ Jesus, known completely, loved forever, and living into that identity and that reality is the only thing that's going to bring us true joy and unity in the middle of a world which is trying so hard to divide us. Let me pray for us, church family. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you have made each and every one of us unique. And we're not led towards sameness and all the unique gifts and all the unique ways you've made us. We're led towards sameness and being in a family of yours. We celebrate the things that make us different, but we are united in Christ as brothers and sisters eternally. And I just ask that you would remind each one of our hearts of that this morning. If there are people we need to reconcile with, if there are relationships we need to work towards healing in, I ask that you would gently and lovingly guide us towards that. If there are relationships we just need to pour into, I ask that you would guide us towards that. I ask, Father, that we would be a light of unity in a world full of darkness and separation. I thank you for who you've made us in Christ. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.